Here's a question we don't ask very often, which is surprising given how much time and money we spent laboring under our misapprehension about the answer to the question. Here we go. What's the office for? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about Dunder Mifflin, copy machines, NCR, and the coffee maker. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth, and this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. And this is Alex De Palma, Seth's co-teacher and producer. In this class, you'll learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because honestly, it's pretty easy. You'll learn to find your voice. You'll learn to find the others. And together in this proven workshop that's back again, you'll discover that you can make a podcast. Not to make money, because unfortunately you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, and to find the people who want to hear from you, which is even more important. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. The Office, one of the most popular TV shows of the last 20 years, is not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about The Office where so many of us go to work or used to go to work. And after a year and a half of enforced distance from The Office, for the first time in a long time, people are thinking about the office, whether they should go back. What's the difference between a good office and a bad office? What is the office even for? Like most things, it probably pays to start at the beginning about where the office came from. A couple office memories that I have, three. The first one is years ago, I was pitching a new technology, and I went to the offices of Polk Audio. And if you've ever read any stereo magazines, you've seen the ads with the lab coats and the whole thing. Polk Audio's offices were basically a little trailer connected to Polk Audio's factory, which was basically a woodworking shop. And so there was sawdust everywhere, and the offices existed to make sure that the people in the factory were doing their job and to sell what the people in the factory made. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. My dad worked for a company that made servotronic controls and fancy electronics, and their offices were adjacent to the places where the machines were actually made. Their offices were fairly ramshackle for a company of that scale, and it was run by engineers. Lots of metal filing cabinets. And the third was my friend, the late Lionel Poulain, uh, the most famous and important baker in all of France. His office was right upstairs from the bakery. Every single day, he would spend part of his time in the office, where he was making calls and selling the bread, and a lot of his time downstairs with the bakers. The origin of the office, which is fairly recent, 150 years old or so, was a little alcove right next to the place where things got made. People who worked in the factory often wanted to be having an office job because it looked a lot easier. You weren't going to hurt your back. And the people in the office were spending a lot of time trying to improve the productivity 
of the people in the factory. If we think back to the foreman whose desk is elevated so they can look down on everyone in the factory, or the pharmacist who's up there high to make sure that none of the customers are lost or shoplifting, this idea of the hierarchy is built in to the history of the office, that the office exists to make sure that the people who work for the person in the office are doing what they're told and are doing it efficiently. Well, as office work started to create more and more value in and of itself, not simply helping the car company produce more cars per worker hour, but to actually design cars that people wanted to buy and to figure out how to market cars so that people would want to buy them and to how to do financial shenanigans so that the value of the organization would go up as operations were enhanced. All of these things led to more and more people being in the office. As more people were in the office, they needed to hire people simply to take care of the people in the office, just like a big factory needs a whole team of people on maintenance detail. Well, in the office, that means we've got clerks, it means we've got admins, it means we've got receptionists, It means we've got people making sure that the people in the office are as productive as possible. And if we look at the history of office design, like the famous Johnson Wax building, architects spent a lot of time dealing with a problem, which is that in a factory, we are really aware of the flow of goods, that assembly lines make some sort of logistical sense, that we can trace where a screw goes when it comes into the building, where it's stored, who needs to go and get it, and how it's put into the device on its way out the door. But in offices, the flow wasn't as clear. So we had the typing pool or the secretarial pool. We had the whole idea of the front desk and the break room. These things were sort of backhanded attempts to figure out the flow. Who knows who? Who sits where? We name the place where the CEO sits, the corner office, because the very name itself tells us something about information flow, about the hierarchy. And this went on for decades. It wasn't unusual at all for an executive at a corporation to call in their secretary, dictate a memo, then the secretary would go and type it, and then that person would walk 20 feet down the aisle and hand the memo to a different secretary who would walk in to their boss's office and hand them the memo to be read by a second executive. That was normal. And if we took executives or office workers from the 1950s or 60s and plopped them into an office from 2014, they would be shocked. Shocked at the informality of information flow shocked at the way people were dressed, at the way that they talked with and at each other, shocked at so many of the ways that the office had dramatically shifted in 50 or 60 years. But we forgot to have a conversation about what the office is even for, because the office might be for a lot of different things now. The first thought is this. If there is a job that can be done repeatedly without a lot of innovation, it has probably been outsourced because organizations are figuring out, for example, 
that they don't need to build an email server. They should just pay MailChimp $20 a month because they know what the spec is of what they need and they can just outsource that to somebody else. If you call a company and you think you're talking to their customer service department, you might not be because a lot of companies have figured out it's better to just outsource that call center, what an interesting phrase, call center, to somebody who's in the business of running call centers. But lots of offices are or were significantly bigger than they needed to be simply for logistical reasons because one of the reasons that companies have offices is that CEOs sort of like them. They like them because they enjoy having plenty of people in the office who are doing what they tell them to do. They like them because they can justify adding marginal effort to the office front because even a little boost in market share or PE ratio pays for itself many times more than that person you hired to be in the office. And so we end up with caste systems and tired status roles. We end up with people being manipulated. We end up with power games. We end up with people, people who are hooked on power, acting it out in an office setting where they get to be the boss. The whole idea of an employee at will who could be fired at any moment for not pleasing the person that they work for. A big argument for the physical proximity of the office is communication. Because before email, if we're putting a note into a pneumatic tube and shooting it around a building as the best way to communicate from one person to another, physical proximity is essential. But the rules changed. They changed with email, they changed with the telephone, and most of all, they changed with Zoom. Because email, asynchronous, eliminates time. You don't have to be in the same moment to communicate with somebody. And then Zoom eliminates space that you can communicate with somebody else, even if they're not in the building. Now, it's worth noting that most large organizations have more than one office anyway. So we had already drifted from the idea that you need to see someone face to face to communicate with them. But business travel, people shuttling all over the world at a great carbon cost, kept growing and growing because there was something to be said for in-person communication. A lot of it had to do with the emotional commitment of showing up. And so the office evolved from this thing where we needed a bunch of people in a room because there was no other way around it to a demonstration of emotional commitment. But while that's going on, we also have offices as warehouses for clerks. And while that's going on, we also have the idea that you have tools. Now, we can't have people building cars from home because it's really hard to put a punch press in your backyard. But back 20, 30, 50 years ago when you needed a Wang word processor and you needed all of the tools of the copy machine and the rest to do your job, you needed to go to a building where all of those things were. But also like Zoom, that shifted. It shifted because once you have a laptop, you own the means of production. That most of the time in most offices, 
the only tools people are using is a laptop and a telephone. And so we have eliminated that desire as well. I think it's now worth taking a minute to realize there's more than one kind of office. There are offices, giant banks, for example, filled with people whose only job is to not screw up, filled with people who are getting paid a lot, who are afforded a whole bunch of external respect, but their job is to be in sync, to go to enough meetings, to double-check enough things that they don't embarrass themselves, because the bank is making so much money that the only job is don't screw up. But there's another kind of office, and this is the kind of office that gets talked about by people like me, by people on the net, by people who have the time to talk about change. And this is the office whose job is not to figure out how to not screw up. Its job is to change things. That the reason companies pay a lot for this sort of white-collar work is it's hard to find people who will bring the energy and the passion and the emotional centeredness to a problem to come up with an original, interesting solution who can actually grow market share, not just maintain it, who can solve interesting problems. And there are offices now and then that add to that magic. I remember walking into the Fast Company offices in Boston and always leaving with more energy than I came in with. Because what Alan and Bill figured out how to do through architecture, through hiring, through leadership, is create a place where the energy and the optimism was contagious. This is the office of a good, exciting movie, like the front page where newspaper people are pushing each other for the scoop, where we are talking about how do we go to work to make things better, not simply to find our place in a pecking order, a hierarchy, to play it safe, to get through the day. TGIF is not one of the features of this sort of office. So when we think about this sort of office, we have to realize it's conflated with the old kinds of offices. That when Google set out to build a different kind of office with the lava lamps and the ball pits and the notorious chef who used to cook for the Grateful Dead, they did all of those things because they wanted a campus. And they wanted a campus because they were intent on changing things, changing things in a big way. But like most organizations, as they got bigger, they lost the thread. So maybe they kept the ball pits. They definitely kept the fancy food. But most of the people who work at Google aren't trying to change anything. They're simply trying to keep things the way they are because they want the stock price to go up on a regular basis. So culturally, we conflate the lava lamps and we conflate the fancy offices with the ability to change things. That's a mistake. So going forward, the question we need to ask is, what kind of office is this anyway? Are we here to put on a show for the boss or the people who work for the boss or the people who work for the people who work for the boss? Is it a show about how many hours we put in so we better be on the Zoom call to show our compliance and our obedience? Because that show is really expensive. And it's expensive when you're doing it from home, it wears us out. And it's expensive when they're doing it in the office. And I think a lot of these big organizations are going to take a look around and say, we don't need that much compliance and we don't need that many people. 
and there's going to be a move to hollow out a lot of the overhead in these institutions because technology, coordination, makes it much easier to get away with fewer people. And for the organizations that want to change things, well, they're still going to need something to shift the emotional posture of the people who work there. Because working together is a great way to get through our individual fear. How do you create that esprit de corps? How do you create that environment where people are willing to extend themselves emotionally and with energy to put themselves on a limb to champion a new idea, a better idea, one that meets skepticism when it is first discussed? And yet, people crusade to push it forward. That is the highest yield of most offices. And that is something that's going to change once the people who are willing to sign up for that have choices. And so I think we're about to see an upheaval in how we spend our day and whether or not we commute and whether we're sending more money to the dry cleaner for an outfit that serves no real utility. What does it even mean to go to work? It is culturally deeply ingrained in us. If you grew up in a blue-collar household, going to work means you go to the factory. If you grew up in a white-collar household, going to work means you go to an office. But in both cases, it keeps changing. It keeps shifting. And going to work is something we need to do, not just for sustenance to support our family, but to fill our days with something that feels like meaning. And there are so many kinds of work, but there were just a few kinds of offices. And that's going to diverge. The culture is going to shift yet again because technology isn't going to wait around. And organizations that need to go fast, that need to innovate, that need to connect people, those organizations might not decide that the office of the future looks a lot like the office of the past. They might decide that what is in front of them is this massive opportunity to coordinate the activity of committed people who are bringing emotional labor, soft skills, real skills, and insight to the table to put together resources and opportunities to make things better by making better things. There's no chance we're going back to the office of 1957. And I think there's little chance we're going back to the office of 2015. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. 
As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes. In this week's show notes, I'll be putting a link to Theo Sanderson's Upgoer Worksheet. Here we go. Three questions this week about words. In fact, I got more questions coming in about the billion dollars worth of words episode than any I've done in a while. I guess I should, if I want to maximize incoming questions, talk more about words and less about, I don't know, the end of the world. That being said, they're all related. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Lightning Lucas again from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Thanks for the episode about words. Uh, I really love words. And I'm just wondering if you could riff on the network effect in regards to words being adopted amongst people like us saying things like this. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for kicking us off, Lucas. Yes, I failed to mention this. Words only work when other people know what they mean. That's fascinating because that's not true for most of the things in our world. Most of the things in our world you can use quite happily by yourself. But as we all know, using words by yourself can make you seem a little bit like an outlier. The network effect. The thing is that things work better when other people are using them That applies more than just about anything to language. So our goal when we are deciding which words to use is to begin with who our audience is, to figure out either, do we need to teach them what a new word means? Are we trying to create tension around the words they don't mean? Or are we going to figure out how to use words that they understand? Earlier, I mentioned the Upgoer Worksheet. It's a website where, inspired by Randall Monroe, creator of XKCD, you can figure out if you can explain something using only the most popular 1,000 words. Why 1,000? Because the number 1,000 is not one of the most popular 1,000 words. It turns out it's not that hard once you get the hang of it, but it might take you a little while to get the hang of it. And if you're writing for a general audience, if you're writing for people for whom the language you're speaking might not be their first language, this is a useful skill to master. And if you want to coin a term, I don't know, like permission marketing or the idea virus or the dip, yeah, you could write a book about it, but it also helps to put that word into company of words that people already understand. Hi, Seth. Jeremy from Lincoln City. A question regarding your Million Dollar Words episode. I'd like your view on when to use those million dollar words and when to avoid them in relation to your smallest viable audience. When do you think it's best to speak directly to that audience who is likely to understand those words and when to avoid them so that a uh, larger public might be able to enter the conversation. Thank you for your podcast. I enjoy nearly every episode. Thanks, Jeremy. This is a great segue from Lucas's question, because if we just use words that are the most popular 1,000 words, we will have no trouble at all reaching large numbers of people. But there's a benefit 
besides the precision of language, to use language that only your smallest viable audience understands or at least embraces. When you talk about kerf, K-E-R-F, a useful Scrabble word and also something that woodworkers understand, it has you come across as more expert than if you say, the space that's made when the bandsaw cuts through the wood. Kerf is a much better, more precise way to say it, and it establishes for your smallest viable audience that you know what you're talking about because they know what kerf is, and if you're not using the word kerf, then maybe you're an outsider. If you talk about kerning, oh, another four-letter word that starts with a K, to a bunch of typographers, again, instead of saying the space between the letters, you know, the way they nest under each other, simply say kern, and you have established to them that you're people like us. So that is a useful, important reason to know the lingo. And yes, the word lingo is an example of what I'm talking about, because I could simply say, know the words that the other people know that show that they're insiders, or I could use an insider term that most people who like language would understand, which is lingo. Not nearly as many points in Scrabble, though. Hello, Seth. This is Ben Davis from Greenville, South Carolina, and I really enjoyed your program about a billion dollars worth of words. And it reminded me about a question about domain knowledge and domain reading that I had after I finished reading the practice. You see, I work in a marketing department for a publisher of biblical worldview-based K-12 educational materials. And that means that we're speaking to an audience about theology. We're talking to them about education. We also speak to homeschoolers. And beyond that, I'm really interested in marketing and all types of different kinds of marketing. And we're asked to do a wide variety of kinds of marketing. And so I'd really appreciate your thoughts and direction on how I should think about where I should focus in terms of uh, studying. Um, right now, I feel like I read superficially across all these different subjects, and I haven't really become a master of any of them. And I really appreciate your insights. Thank you for all you do. Really appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, for this practical way to finish these three questions. Here's my tip. When you read trade magazines, when you read popular texts, are there words in there that you think you understand, but you're not sure, that you've sort of glazed over, that you've danced around? Highlight those words. What exactly does eleemosynary mean? I know you've seen the word eleemosynary lots of times in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and you think you know what it means, but what does it really mean? And if you can track down one or two or three words a day, that's all, and figure out what they really mean, you will discover more than vocabulary. You will discover concepts. Because knowing a word helps us know the concept, and knowing a concept helps us know the word. And so we're not simply learning vocabulary to signal to other people that we're an insider. We're learning vocabulary because being an insider means that we understand how the systems work. We know where the overthruster is and why it's hooked up to the manifold, and you get the idea. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.